Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is a longtime friend of SciFarth, Susan Lamberth. Susan is a founding principal at Law Vision and is nationally recognized as one of the top leadership, practice group, and project management consultants for law firms. Susan is also the chair and founder of the LPM Institute, a leading resource for educating law firms and law departments on implementing project management in their organizations. Susan has been extremely influential in shaping the business of big law for many years now. She's one of the true trailblazers of legal project management, and many of today's law firm project management offices can trace their origins back to her pioneering work. I first met Susan in the early 2000s when we worked with her at SciFarth on strengthening our practice group structure. Listen in to today's conversation to learn more about Susan's take on how project management and process improvement are related but different skill sets and how they interact with one another in today's environment. What types of people are taking on the LPM role and the experience they bring to the table. Spoiler alert, it's not usually project management. And what the current war for allied professional talent says about the industry. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. And as always, check out the show notes for links to her work. Susan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. How are things down in Nashville? They're great. Susan, you've been uh, in the consulting business for a long time. You've seen a lot of change happen in the industry. Uh, What got you into consulting? I know you've got a law degree from Pennsylvania and an MBA from Villanova. Tell us a little bit about your personal journey that got you into this business. Sure. Well, I come from a family of scientists, actually, and my parents are both scientists. My mom was kind of an early pioneer as one of the first women in science, and I'm from a science town, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they did a lot of the research in nuclear issues and so on and were instrumental. There that was the code name Manhattan Project was my hometown. So it's a full town of lots of scientists and engineers. And uh, my parents actually really weren't thrilled about me going to law school. They tried to persuade me differently. I can imagine that's right. <laughs> you had to be the rebel in the family. Yes, yes. So and my sister's an engineer. So I was kind of I describe it the black sheep of the family going into law and business ultimately. So I I went to law school at Penn and I was working part-time for my second and third year. And so I really enjoyed that. And I was working in a law firm. But when I got out and I was practicing full-time, I think the fact that I was kind of splitting my time in different things when I was partly student, partly working in a law firm. When I started practicing, I actually found I had a business degree undergraduate from University of North Carolina, which is one of the top business schools in the country. And I'd really enjoyed that. And I considered doing the JD MBA program, but I graduated three years from college and went to law school literally two weeks after my college graduation. And so I was kind of having my senior year college, my first year law school, which isn't such a great idea in hindsight. So as I got into law school and started exploring things, I thought about whether or not I wanted to pursue the JD MBA and ultimately decided just to do the law degree. But when I started practicing, I really realized that I liked the business side as well. And so I had started with two different sets of friends, two side businesses back when that was kind of unusual when you were practicing law. One was a marketing consulting business and one was a fitness and wellness program. I'm a competitive runner for many decades. And so I was doing these things on the side and just finding that I liked that better than practicing. So I ultimately ended up starting to explore some different options and looking at 
what were other things lawyers could do? And I remember like talking to someone who'd been a lawyer who was now in the stock market, working at one of the companies. And when he was practicing law, he literally took every lunch break and went over to sit on the floor of the exchange just because he loved that so much. I thought, <laughs> okay, that's not me. So I was kind of exploring different things and talking to people and ultimately ended up at Altman a while through an alumni contact that I had from the University of North Carolina. The managing partner at the time was a alumni contact I had. So I ended up finding this field of management consulting to law firms. And I remember early on it just thinking to myself, this is just the best thing ever. I can't imagine that I found a field that marries my legal background, but also the business background that I enjoyed so much. So it was really just a great fit for me. What learnings did you take from your time? I don't know how long you were a practicing lawyer, but what did that experience teach you in terms of analyzing the business of law? Well, I think the main thing is just, you know, what we now know from lots of Dr. Larry Richards' research, that the lawyer personalities are very different and that law firms are a very different kind of place to work than a corporation, at least historically they've been. And so just that experience, having been in a law firm, understanding the partner associate dynamic, the owner run business culture was very interesting. I didn't know it at the time, but when I got to Altman & Weill, the firm I worked for, there was a report that they had gotten from Altman & Weill about what they should do. Then when I got to Hildebrandt, there was a report that they'd gotten from Hildebrandt of what they should do. I don't think they'd implemented either one of them, kind of, kind of looking for a second opinion from a new doctor. But it, it also told me that maybe my experience practicing law was partly affected by, you know, like a lot of law firms, they can improve. And back then, not many were getting a lot of consulting done. And so had they implemented some of those recommendations, I might have enjoyed that time practicing law better. But then I never would have found this field that I've loved for several decades now. As you've seen the evolution of law firms business, and I think largely on the law firm side as opposed to law department side, if I understand it correctly, how have you seen it evolve over the course of those decades? Sure. Well, and, and I, I do now do work some with law departments. I'll, I can talk a little bit about later, but the evolution, most of my work, particularly historically, was with law firms. And the way that I saw the evolution, and it also kind of drove my career, was law firms in the early days were really managing primarily at what I call kind of the firm management, you know, executive committee management committee level. And as firms got larger and more complex, they added more practice areas, they grew in terms of numbers of lawyers, they added offices, they needed to then start to manage down at the department or practice group level. And so I was fortunate when I joined Hildebrandt to work with one of my partners and mentors who was one of the early people helping law firms set up practice groups and even develop job descriptions for practice group leaders back in the early 90s that I saw this evolution because prior to that, I'd worked primarily in the strategy and marketing areas. And I started seeing this need for the business principles to be applied. And around that same time, I had worked for over the years, I had done my MBA in the evening program part-time, primarily because I was traveling almost every day consulting with law firms and doing retreats on the weekends. So I'd done my MBA in the evening program, but what I was seeing was the need to take some of those principles I'd learned in my MBA program and teach them to lawyers as they were first beginning to recognize that they were running these small businesses within the larger law firm business. And so I started working with my colleague, Don Akins, and we developed these practice group leader training programs, again, that were really just a, kind of a first of their kind for people to be teaching practice group leaders basic leadership and management skills. And then about the time of the global financial crisis, particularly around 08, 09, 
we started seeing that law firms, as they were, they had moved from managing at that firm level down to this department or practice group level pretty effectively. But then we started seeing the need, particularly coming out of things I know, Steve, you were instrumental in working on, like the ACC value challenge that you and your colleagues at Cyparth worked on. You know, the changing client expectations, the focus on value really meant that law firms needed to evolve to now managing down at the matter level. And that's essentially what project management is. And so I had spent these years, you know, a decade or more really helping to practice group leaders learn how to lead and manage at that level and developing a very experiential, interactive program for teaching them how to do that and changing their thoughts and behaviors as they thought about themselves as leaders of these small business units within the law firm. And it really helped me then be able to develop something similar for at the matter level for lawyers to then think differently about how they did their work. And I know you've heard the quote, many people talk about it, but this idea of, you know, it's hard to convince a room full of millionaires that their business model's broken, convincing partners that are very successful that they can change a bit about the way they do their practice day to day, but make it better. Again, is another aspect of change management, but something thankfully that clients are really pushing today. Yeah, let's let's stay in the Wayback Machine a little bit, because I, I do want to spend a bunch of time talking about legal project management and your role there, because you've been instrumental in the evolution of that profession, its application in the legal industry. But as you're talking about this evolution in the 90s and 2000s leading up to the recession, this movement of application of business principles, the movement from geographic-based to practice-based, which you were so instrumental in driving, had to be a big change for partners and for managers of law firms. You know, we're a profession, not a business, I remember running up against the time. How did you manage to help firms manage through that change? Was there tricks or techniques you use that worked for you to help break down the resistance to changing the way they operated? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, thankfully at Hildebrandt, we had a large base of clients. We worked with a majority of the AMLAW 100, second hundred firms. And so there was a lot of being able to convince firms others were doing it, which that definitely makes a difference. And that kind of evidence-based approach in legal. I also was really fortunate back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I had an opportunity to work with some of the professors at Harvard and Columbia in their executive education programs and really see what they were doing in terms of kind of change management, organizational development. What were some of the approaches that they used that helped get buy-in? And so I started incorporating that into everything from how we would run a partner's meeting, how we would be communicating. You know, in some firms, it would be literally going to their different offices and doing kind of a town hall to convince them that this approach of working in a practice-based way was better than the office-based way. But it, as you kind of alluded to, I mean, office managing partners were very threatened by that in many firms. And in some firms, their whole governance structure was based on the leaders of offices rather than the leaders of their litigation department or their corporate department or the practice groups underneath that. So it, it took a lot of selling in some firms. In other firms, I think they just kind of understood that they were seeing all already internal competition across offices or an inability to serve clients as thankfully around the same time, many clients started really wanting more seamless service across their geographies and had taking more of a national or global approach to their work. And that helped because clients would, you know, give law firms sometimes the feedback that, you know, we're getting different approaches to the work. You know, if we hire a corporate lawyer in one office and versus another office, it's like they're two different law firms and clients didn't like that. And so that was definitely helping us build the business case for lawyers moving in this direction. I also found that 
frankly, we we had some evidence that, and I can't say it was a big survey, but from working with enough firms, that it actually made it easier for lawyers to get their work done and they had to work less total hours if they were working in a practice group driven approach. One of the things I often tell people even today is lawyers have always said, you know, if I wanted to be a salesperson, I wouldn't have gone to law school. And yet the more you go up in a law firm compared to say the big four, the more management, marketing and production responsibility you have historically. We make partners do everything rather than recognizing, you know what, this partner's really good at business development, but not good at managing people. And people intuitively recognize that, but there was this kind of expectation that you had to be good at all of those things. And when they could see the practice group approach, help them be able to have somebody in the practice group who's really good at mentoring younger lawyers and somebody who's good at innovation and technology and somebody else who's good at business development, that they can bring those skills together across a practice group in a way that you couldn't do at an office level because they weren't really servicing the same niches. And that helped people believe just at their personal level, you know, this is going to make my life easier and it's going to let me bring my talents to bear rather than this idea that I have to be good at these things that we all know we can't be equally good at all of those other areas, you know, at all three areas. Yeah, at the end of the day, it is what's in it for me, right? I mean, not from a selfish standpoint, but people have to see the personal benefit of a change before they can embrace it. Right. And so, you know, literally my slides would go through the benefits to the firm, the benefits to the client, and the benefits to an individual lawyer. And sometimes I think that's what it took to really sell people was that they ultimately would see that it was better for them at that individual level. And then part of what was happening just all across the U.S. at least, the U.K. firms are a bit different in terms of their structure, but the U.S. firms, you know, there would sometimes be those in firm management that were worried, you know, if we do this, will our big rainmakers leave because we're getting them to be kind of more managed, as Baster would have called it, you know, the partners have to be willing to give up some autonomy and be willing to be managed. And what we're finding, though, is that as most firms were moving in this direction, unless they were more of a boutique firm like an IP or labor employment focused firm only, that there weren't a lot of options for them to leave and go to another firm where they weren't going to be managed in or, or using this model, unless they went off and started their own small firm. And then they'd have all the headaches of managing everything, not just making some of these changes that it might mean to move to a more practice-driven structure. And I think today, most firms have realized how beneficial it is to them to be in this structure, assuming, again, it's right for their practice mix. Now, you talked about the evolution of legal project management in terms of the movement from executive committee management down to practice group limit level management, down to manner management. And currently, you founded the LPM Institute. I know you just ran the Global LPM Summit. So it's become a big component of the way law firms operate with these allied professionals. But walk us through a little bit of the history of the evolution, because you alluded to sort of in the 08, 09 period, that's where you began to see a lot of take up on this. Give us your view on how this profession has evolved. Sure. Well, your firm, Seifarth and Baker Donaldson, were two of the firms that started before that global financial crisis and really saw the need before. But many firms, it really came out of that pressure from clients at that time. Again, setting the stage with the value challenge and clients having tremendous pressure on them for greater value efficiency, better use of their legal or stewarding of their legal spend. But also at the same time, I think clients became more confident in their ability to push back against law firms and tell them, you know, if we think this wasn't done in an effective way, we expect you to write some time off. And so what we started seeing with large law firms around then was tremendous numbers in terms of their write-downs and write-offs. 
And we did an analysis about five years ago, even with several firms in the 800 to 1,000 lawyer range. And literally the, what they called avoidable write-downs or write-offs was between 57 million and 121 million with that group of firms. So obviously a huge number that if we could bring down some part of that with better management of the work at the project management level, it would make a big difference in terms of firm performance and of course, satisfied clients. So firms started recognizing that. And so there were kind of two big pressures. One was clients asking for it. So many RFPs today ask for it, but it was starting back then asking at least for how are you going to be efficient in handling our work? What transparency will you have? How will you communicate? How will you control costs? Now today it's often asking, do you have legal project management? How will you use it? Can you even provide us with certified legal project managers? So the client pressure was one part of it. And then the economic pressure on law firms, because as you know, law firms, unlike how law firms performed last year in the pandemic, and actually a lot of them went up in profitability, that wasn't the case in coming out 2009 and 10 when law firm profitability took a big hit. So law firms are recognizing there's only so much we can raise rates, but we have a lot of room to fix this write-down, write-off issue and improve our profitability through doing that better. And that really drove a lot of the emphasis on project management. Two of the big change variables you just talked about, sort of the voice of the client and the data around numbers, were also themes I think you talked a little bit about in terms of some of the other changes leading up to practice group management, et cetera. Have you found those to be important drivers of change consistently through your career? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's much more so, the, you know, the last 20 or so years, there's an old quote attributed to Marty Lipton. I don't know if he, uh, from Walk to Lipton, I don't know if this is true or not, but he used to say, lawyers know they're in the service business. They've just forgotten who's supposed to serve whom. Um, <laughs> That, that was around in the late 80s, early 90s. Thankfully, the clients being in the driver's seat, when that shifted, that made a big difference in terms of being able to get change in law firms. And you combine that with, as you know, a better understanding of what are the drivers of law firm profitability. And of course, it's affected as well by just the focus on profits per partner that we see in every legal publication and the, the MLAW 100 and 200 numbers when they come out. So Law firms recognizing they needed to compete in that arena made them much more focused on ways that they could improve profits. And as a result, then it's driven their interest in focusing on basic management areas they could change that could improve that significantly. So let's talk about legal project management for a minute. You've talked about the evolution of it and how it started. Embedded within sort of legal project management is both project management and process improvement. And those are related, but in my view, different skill sets. Talk a little bit about those two skill sets and how they interact with one another in today's environment. Well, I think they're very closely related. One of my colleagues works more in the process improvement area than I do. And in the early days, we used to say that, you know, we thought process improvement would take off first, or she did particularly, because in a perfect world, you would improve your processes and in a particular practice area, how we do X kind of work. And then you would project manage to that new improved process. But in fact, what we've seen is that process improvement is a little bit more threatening to many lawyers. The idea that I'm going to go to you and say, change the way you've done your work historically, and we're going to process map and figure out the best, most efficient way to do the work. And then we're going to do it that way. That really is hard for the lawyer autonomy, for the, the mindset around autonomy. And so what we found, project management includes naturally some process improvement as part of it. You know, if I go to you and say, let's just start with some incremental improvement. We're going to understand the scope of work better. We're going to map out the steps in the work, I'm not necessarily changing them yet, but people start to naturally think when they do, for example, a work breakdown structure, 
they start to naturally think, oh, wait a minute, does that need to be done by a senior associate or could that be done by a mid-level or junior associate? Does that need to be done by associate at all or could it be done by a paraprofessional or a contractor? And so there's natural process improvement that incurs in that. I still believe, you know, in a perfect world, you'd improve the process and then project manage to it. But what we've seen is it took law firms a while to understand the improvement they could get, particularly in reducing write-downs, write-offs by implementing project management first. And then once they buy into that and you see partners get very receptive, then they tend to be very willing to have many of them at least, very willing to look at how can we actually then improve our processes? And then we can even apply more project management to that. Your firm, and there have been a handful of others that have been really pioneers and leaders in implementing process improvement and having a whole culture around it. But I find in a lot of firms, it was just too threatening to bring that change as well as other change to them. And the project management was seen by many at least as more incremental. Some might have seen it as radical, but I think it was experienced by many as more incremental improvement that got them to a place where then they could accept that they could actually change more about their work. When you're looking for people who are moving into this profession, and I think it's truly a profession, what's their typical background? And maybe there's not a typical background. Maybe they come from all walks of life or all prior professions, but what is it? Is there any consistency in terms of how people approach this profession or are attracted to it? Well, there have been several groups that have looked at that, and I run what we call the Law Vision LPM Roundtable, and it's basically the LPM professionals and about 40 major firms, and they've actually had some discussions about what are the traits we look for, what are the skills, and a lot of it comes down to what I hate this term, but the soft skills, emotional intelligence, good communication skills, good organizational skills. Initially, a lot of the people in these roles in law firms came from some legal background, There's a good number that are former practicing lawyers. There's former paralegals. There's really, they've come from IT and professional development and BD, really all backgrounds in law. But a majority, I think if we did a survey right now, a majority came from some position or experience in legal rather than more of a traditional project management background. I think the profession's now evolved enough that we're able to bring people from traditional project management backgrounds in as well. And we're also seeing there's such a lack of people for these roles right now. Many firms can't hire enough for the positions they have. I mean, there's firms that have 50 to 70 professionals in their firm in the LPM function, and so they can't hire enough. So they're hiring from the big four from other professional service organizations, and then again, just some from traditional project management. The early people in most firms where there wasn't a lot of receptivity to project management yet, if they changed, came from a traditional project management background, they often didn't work out because in traditional project management, at least people who have a certified PMP, project management professional background, one of the things that they teach them in that is that you're to be a manager, not a doer. And literally, I had the COO of a firm tell me that their project manager, who actually was a lawyer by background, came from the military, but had a PMP as well. He went to his boss and said, I don't understand why when I tell the lawyers to do something, they don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Yes. And again, because they're not supposed to do it for them, they're supposed to tell them what to do and manage it. Like a project, none of us would set foot in a skyscraper today if there wasn't a project manager for that project that told the engineers and the builders and everybody what to do. But in law, we know they're not going to go tell a partner how to run their matter. So they have to understand that dynamic of, again, an owner-run business, the way legal services work. And so ultimately, it's very important that they have good influence and persuasion skills. And the people in my roundtable, the people in these roles across the globe definitely have that. In fact, we had some sessions on that at this recent global LPM summit that you spoke for. And people are recognizing that they can bring people in with some of these skills, and then they continue to evolve and develop them in other areas. For example, financial acumen is actually an important part of the role. But many coming in with a legal background 
background don't have that. So it's something that they'll train them on the job or have various kinds of training programs that they might send them to because you need to understand the data, be able to put together a budget, analyze where the budget is and that kind of thing. I was thinking as you were talking about some of the history and the evolution, you know, in the early days, there was this debate about, well, should we train all the lawyers to be project managers versus a professional? And of course, at SciFarth, we came down on the belief that this is a profession and you want qualified people to do it. And it seems as if that debate is a historic one now, no longer a real debate given the growth of the profession itself. But how did you work people through that as you're working through this process and the evolution of the business? Because it was a powerful debate for a while. I think it's still a big issue in law firms because no law firm has enough people, even Baker McKenzie, who has the largest team at 60 or 70 now, they don't have enough people to service all the matters for, you know, a 5,000 lawyer firm. So there's there's kind of a debate that goes on in many firms. And I picture it kind of like a spectrum of should it be mainly lawyer driven or should it be mainly by embedded LPMs or somewhere in between. And I find it's somewhat of a cultural issue in a lot of firms. One, to your point about allied professionals, there are some firms where they really embrace allied professionals and they treat them like, you know, as much like a partner as you could in an owner-run organization, and they give them a lot of respect and they will take their advice. There are others where they, the lawyers really have to be doing everything. And you'll notice in some firms, even their business professionals, their allied professionals often have a law degree or they're not, quote, credible. So culturally, it can be very different. But I think many firms today are finding that even if they have a large team of professionals, and it very much is a profession today, they have strong backgrounds, they have true expertise, there still needs to be education for the lawyers too, because I don't think we're ever going to have enough people that every matter you know, has an embedded legal project management professional versus a lawyer who's trained in those skills. So I think part of the model is the way the big four think about it. My colleague who helped me develop our training program years ago, she came from the big four, and this was something they were just teaching people how to do 25, 30 years ago. Every professional learned, they didn't even call it project management. And they certainly didn't call it accounting firm project management. Um, they, just <laughs> called it, they just taught it as the way, the discipline that they applied to their matters. So from the minute they opened a matter, they set it up and had kickoff meetings with their client. They scoped the work, they managed the work. It was just part of their way of operating. And the representatives of the big four I had speak for the global summit kind of continued that theme that it's just part of the way they operate. And I've had this idea for years that we won't even need people like me training in law firms eventually because it will just be the way that lawyers grow up and it's part of the way they do things. But I predicted that like 10 years ago and it hasn't happened yet. But I do think as younger lawyers grow up, they're willing to accept kind of a discipline of here are certain ways of doing our work. Because frankly, you see a lot of young lawyers in firms, they come in and they go, why are things so disorganized? Why does this partner do it this way? And this partner in the same practice does it completely different. They don't see a need for that. And we know that there's different ways of operating and we don't want people to be robotic. But at the same time, I think they appreciate that there can be some simple disciplines brought to the practice, which is I think of project managers just bringing some simple disciplines to how we do things that make us more organized and communicate better and provide better client service rather than it being this radical change to how we work. Is that where you see the future of project management going, this generational change, people embracing it and becoming more part of just the way we do business as opposed to a thing that sits out there in a separate office? I think that there can still be a value in a separate office, particularly because 
the firms that have large teams of LPMs, they get embedded in a very large complex matter where a person practicing law couldn't do that and have their day job as a practicing lawyer too. So I think there's still very much a need for that group, both embedded in matters and driving the change management across their organization. Many of them develop training programs and self-service portals in their organizations for being able to offer those services to their lawyers. But I do think that, and it'll get driven, I don't know if it's just going to be by the profession kind of by osmosis or more culturally within firms where the firm recognizes that this should just be the way that we're starting to have our people think from the minute they join the firm and have some kind of standard ways we operate. I know there's a few firms right now trying to do that, just teaching lawyers more digital acumen, for example, and following a digital transformation, much like the big four have done, so that everybody kind of thinks in that way and has a digital acumen. I think there's an opportunity for firms particularly if they leading from the top to have a culture that they do that. And ultimately, I think we'll all get there. I just don't know. It took, you know, from the early 90s to really about 20 years before we got there where practice management isn't a thing people even think about in most law firms. It's just the way we operate. Every couple of years, I get a project with a firm where they were doing it kind of in name only, or they're still office oriented, or they had big departments, but they never really empowered at the practice group level. So they don't really have that cohesion and focus you can get at a practice group level. But most firms across the largest part of the profession are very much, it's just internalized. Nobody thinks, oh, I've got to be part of a practice group. They just go to their meetings. They participate actively. It's kind of their home room and part of the way that they're culturized within the law firm. Yeah. So we've been talking about legal project management and how it's enculturated in the law firm. Let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about the changes you've seen in the strategic issues firms are grappling with as a result of the pandemic. Sort of walk us through a little bit. What were the pre-pandemic, what were the issues they're grappling with? I, I sense from your comments and your role, a lot of it was operational excellence, reducing the cost of the business, trying to drive efficiencies. Is that right? And if so, how have those changed, if at all, as a result of the global pandemic? Well, you've probably seen too, Steve, over the years, things tend to be kind of like pendulum swing. Um, they, do. So, they do. You know, right after the global financial crisis, we had all this focus on cutting costs and being more efficient. And then we were doing so well in the profession leading into the pandemic that, frankly, I think a lot of firms, while there was talk in many firms about innovation and different new things they were rolling out, in a lot of ways, it wasn't taken that seriously in firms, at least not in terms of the amount they were investing in it and how much they were really trying to get partners to buy into changing. In fact, I had an interesting experience. We had a roundtable we were running of litigation heads in large firms for a while, and I was meeting at one of the firm's offices with this group of litigation heads from across these eight or 10 firms. And one of the firms had just been in the press about this innovation thing that they had done. I mean, all the legal press had covered this thing. So one of the topics on the agenda was innovation. And I turned to the partner in this firm that had been in the press to share with his colleagues about this. And again, very kind of Las Vegas rules, private, you can share whatever about it. And he turned back to me and said, well, you probably know more about it than I do. And all I do, I mean, all of his business professionals are in one or more of my roundtables, but all I knew was what I'd read in the press. And you know this from having been chair of your firm. I think the big challenge, particularly pre-pandemic, we'll get to post, but was you could do all these great things as a firm, but trying to get it on the radar screen of your partners so that they, one, want it and believe in it, but can talk to your clients about it. And I ran into their innovation head by the elevator after the meeting, and I told her what had happened, and she kind of cringed. She said, yeah, part of our goal this year is to really educate partners. 
So you've got this kind of challenge going on. So kind of long-winded answer, but pre-pandemic, there was focus on efficiency and value, but some firms, frankly, they were doing so well that they couldn't get partners to take it very seriously. And the challenge really was, could they actually get partners who are so focused on serving their clients and staying up on their area of expertise? Could they really get them to be able to talk with a client credibly about a new technology, an app they're developing, some other innovation that they're doing, and to be able to have that work so the clients actually believe they do it, not just because they put it in a brochure or they've got an allied professional that could talk about it because the partners believe it and own it. I think that's a huge challenge then and now. Post-pandemic, I think maybe it's just because of where we are right now in terms of what law firms are focusing on the return to work. But the really interesting thing to me right now is the war for talent. And it's going, obviously, it's the war for talent in terms of the lawyer ranks, but it's also the war for talent in the allied professionals ranks, which I think is actually a good thing. And maybe that will start those roles being taken even more seriously in law firms, because right now you can't find enough LPM people, as I mentioned, practice management people, innovation heads. I mean, they're all being poached from firm to firm, as you've seen. And that's going to be an interesting issue. And then I think that just this focus on technology, as we recognize that law firms now can operate in a totally different hybrid way coming out of this that I think is going to change the dynamics, not only of how we're thinking about leading and managing people, both at the practice management level, the project management level, and other ways, but also how we compete against organizations. Because some of the Canadian members of one of our roundtables were lamenting recently that U.S. firms right now are poaching their lawyers and can offer like 40% higher salaries because they don't care where they work. And so if we start seeing this kind of landscape where we can compete for talent anywhere in the globe, that makes it, I think, much more interesting in terms of what firms kind of, we've already seen the haves and have nots in terms of kind of profits per partner and other issues. I think it can make some firms really even more winners and losers, I think, in that war for talent. Yeah, you you made an interesting point, which I hadn't focused on, which is the war for talent on the allied professionals. It does reflect an increasing importance on these skill sets and their, their roles in the firm, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And we're seeing this in just our roundtable members as they share about what they're being asked to do and how they're increasingly in strategic discussions in the firm. We had two sessions for a recent roundtable on becoming a trusted advisor, but frankly, many of them already are trusted advisors in their firm. And I think that's that, you know, when you get over that that tipping point of not just getting a function done within the law firm, but you're actually in that trusted advisor role. I wrote an article last year, early in the pandemic, really about why business professionals or allied professionals are so valuable in law firms today, because I was really disappointed to see some of the best people I know in some of these roles in LPM and practice management and others actually laid off during the early part of the pandemic as firms had kind of a knee-jerk reaction to what was going on, when in fact, I think those are the functions and the people, the best people in that are what's going to enable firms to be much more competitive in the future. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, isn't it? And hopefully some of this mindset change, you talked about it sort of post-recession, it wasn't as sticky as perhaps we would have liked it to be, that the rate of change slowed down as firms began to get back on their feet financially. Hopefully this tipping point you talk about is truly one that changes the mindset of firms so that they recognize the value of these allied professionals and the role they play in driving change. Well, and I think the competition from the big four and the alternative providers, new law companies, all the various terminologies we're using now, I think that's also going to continue to keep the gas on. And, you know, what we've seen outside the U.S. with the big four being able to compete, I frankly think they're one of the biggest competitors, particularly for mid-sized firms once they're able to practice in the U.S. But we all know they're doing a lot of, you know, what we would consider legal work in ways that they're allowed to do now. I just think it'll change dramatically once they're allowed to do that in a more public way. And I know some of them don't want to be seen as competitors to law firms because they have strong relationships with them. But 
I think those kinds of companies, if law firms aren't as part of their strategy, thinking seriously about what are the kind of, you know, the competitors we don't think about, not just our peer list of firms we're always benchmarking against, but what are these other competitors and how are they competing? I mean, how are they taking little pieces of the business away from us? Thinking about Clayton Christensen's work and the innovator's dilemma. I think that law firms ought to be, law firm leaders at least, ought to really be thinking about where they could get blindsided by some of that. But again, it goes to that quote of, it's hard to convince a room full of millionaires that their business model's broken when law firms made more money last year than ever before. So some firms I'm afraid are going to go back to, hey, we went through the recession just fine. So why do we need to do things differently? Or not recession, yeah. well, recession yeah. and the pandemic. Well, I think that's right. And one last sort of observation I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. This is in relation to the big four. What I've seen, and, and you touched on it with this view of their mindset about inculcating essentially project management just in the way you handle matters, they think differently about the way they service clients in terms of the utilization of multidisciplinary skill sets, project management embedded in the culture. Yes, they have yep. an advantage in capital, and yes, they have an advantage in size, and yes, they have limitations in terms of regulatory restrictions on what they can practice, what they can audit for. But those mindset things, I think, give them a pretty big, maybe not advantage, but a pretty big edge going into some fierce competition. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, they are masters in process and technology. And then you add the things like capital and scale. The other thing I think is really important for them is that they now have the majority of the C-suite relationships. Lawyers used to have lots of relationships throughout the company, but now, not always, but many law firms are limited to the legal department. And the general counsel is often now in a you know very much more strategic role in their company. But the main relationships many partners have is with the in-house lawyers, not at that strategic level of the company, at least not in, in many instances I see in the same way that the big four have that from their alumni that are the CEO, COO, CFOs of many of the Fortune 500. And so you add that, those relationships that law firms, you know, I think will find it hard to compete against. And, you know, lawyers will say, and I've also heard clients say, yeah, but the law firms still have the highest quality expertise. But we all know that clients don't necessarily want the A-plus job for every project. They're happy with the B-plus job for lots of projects, or they can't afford the 100% solution. And so I think that combined with the fact that if they were going to recruit a few partners from some of the best law firms in this country to come in, you know, if I was a partner at Cravath or Davis Polk or somewhere, and I got a chance to come in and shape the legal function at a Deloitte or PwC or whoever, that could be a really compelling proposition for a 40-something partner in one of those big firms. And I don't think it takes much for them to be able to recruit a few people like that to where they could have some of even the talent that law firms right now will say, well, they just don't have the legal talent we have. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch and see, isn't it? Susan, we've run out of time, but I, I want to say thank you for your time. And it was a great discussion. And uh, you've been an important contributor to the change and evolution of the legal industry over the last couple of decades. And I look forward to what you're going to continue to do as you push some of these uh, professions forward. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Steve. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.